my whole world is about a media business where I create a bunch of stuff that can be traded. Space on the podcast, space on GitLatka, interview in the magazine. And then you trade these things for other things to get leverage and growth. Hello and welcome to Confessions of a B2B Marketer. It's a big episode today. We have Nathan Alatka. I've been following, as I say, an interview him since like 2016 and super smart, super open with everything. We even go into the details of a podcast sponsorship agreement he signed back in 2018 with HostGator for $15,000 a month. Anyway, awesome episode. So we cover the impact really and the importance of building owned channels or owned audiences, e.g. Nathan's media strategy that he's been growing since 2016, 17, all the way through to today and has enabled him to do all this other stuff. For example, build this big fintech company, found a path. So that's the key thing from this episode that I think is super important, the power of media in B2B. So let's jump into that after thanking fame who are the sponsors of this podcast and also my company, We Start and Grow, podcast for B2B businesses. If you're interested, go to fame.so, tell them that Tom sent you and we'll jump on a call to discuss podcast. All right, let's jump into that discussion with Nathan now. Nathan, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Tom. Appreciate it. Do you remember how we first met? It was 2016? Now you're making me feel self-conscious. I want to go back on LinkedIn and search our message history and see, hold on, I got it right here. I said on Jan. No, it wasn't somewhere else. It was somewhere else, not LinkedIn. I think it was Skype. Oh my God. Anyway, I remember, and I really put you on the spot here, so obviously don't feel bad. But I think what happened is I somehow, we were somehow in contact and then I offered to run your Instagram for you because I was doing Instagram stuff. And I think the deal was I would do that for like a month or whatever. And then I would get to go on your podcast, like right one of the earlier episodes, maybe episode 100 or something. Uh, and then we did that and then stayed in touch. And then I ended up writing some case studies for you. I mean, I remember the case study stuff. I had no idea the first connection was Skype. How incredible. And uh, man, you were episode 100 on my show. Isn't that why I think back then, I had no idea I was going to record over 3,300 episodes now today. It's wild. We're going to get into that. It was absolutely, I'll link it below, but I performed terribly in that episode. Anyway, let's dig in because there's so much to talk about. The high level arc of this episode for me is going to be your like media versus business strategy, which I've just been watching really since 2015. So my first question is obviously, we had the pre-business and they had time off and you decided to start the podcast, which is like the first thing of the media brand, which has now ballooned into this massive thing. And you've been able to build this side business that we're going to get to, not side business, main business that we'll get to. Was it always the strategy to start with media and then go to build the business out? Look, in, in a world where people want to post clickbait Twitter threads, the right answer is for me to tell you, Tom, I had everything planned from the beginning. I'm a genius. I was so smart. The answer is I had absolutely no clue. Right. The only thing I'll give myself credit for in the early days is I knew I wanted to keep working and sell something to B2B software founders. So with just that one piece of knowledge, the start was build something that they will watch, make something valuable for them. And that was the podcast. Everything else after that, I edited along the way. I listened carefully, but this was not pre-planned mastermind kind of thing. The choice of B2B SaaS was a good one back in those days. Did you foresee that this was going to kind of become like a bigger thing moving into the 2020s? Or was that again? Well, look, I think this is valuable for many founders or maybe marketers listening, thinking about launching their own thing. We generally believe whatever we're doing in the moment is the thing that everyone else is doing. We forget that we have specialized knowledge and that the rest of the world may not know anything about what we're doing. And so what I would tell you is my first software company, Heyo, right, was 
B2B software. And I love how it grew, the recurring revenue. I became addicted to that. I said, of course, this is the future. How could there be any other future? This made me feel amazing. Of course, everyone else is going to feel amazing. Now, look, I probably should have done more research. I just got lucky that that happened to be the thing I was doing. And it also happened to be pretty early. And it also happens to be easier and easier today to build software. So more people are doing it. And now it's a bigger market. Do you think in hindsight that it was a good thing that you weren't able to buy Success Magazine? (laughs) You remember that. This is amazing. I love this. I was desperately early on not wanting to spend money to promote my stuff. First off, I didn't have a lot of money back then. And I just didn't like spending money. So I said, how can I win with this instead of money? How can I do something creative? And so what I did is I unsolicited wrote a letter of intent to buy Success Magazine and sent it to them. Like I never chatted with the CEO and I just emailed it to him, the LOI. And he wrote back and said like, screw off basically. And I said, this is great press. I'm gonna screenshot and put it on Twitter. And it turned out it was great, right? I mean, that week, I think our downloads shot up and our email list shot up 100%, 200%. So this is something, by the way, that I think gets lost in the world of AI. Everybody thinks like, oh, we're just going to use AI. The thing is, creativity is what's going to win. When everyone else is using the same AI sort of machines, whoever's the most creative and does something that you can't train AI to do is going to be the attention break. And that's going to be the winner. And so that Success Magazine LOI is an example of that. Okay, so we got the podcast like 2017. Podcast is starting to pop off. You will see have background in marketing. You're able to hit the charts, et cetera. Let's just touch upon first, because we've done like over 3,000 episodes now on a little bit on the system. Like, how did you, like, what is the process? And I've experienced it myself being a guest. What are just a couple of things you guys have done to systemize this thing to enable you to sustain? Just to go back a second, I mean, I remember the temperature this day was about 31 degrees. The wind chill was about 24 degrees. I was 21 years old running across the drill field at Virginia Tech. I was studying architecture. This was in Southwest Virginia. It was February or January. And we had just been put on the cover at Hayo because we raised an equity round. But I was studying architecture. I mean, I had no idea how to sell. I had no idea how to code. So when I launched the podcast and I was thinking about how do I get attention quickly, all I did is I interviewed 40 people before I launched one episode. And these, all I did is I went to the, like, Tom, I went to your website or I went to someone's website. And you know how everyone has the opt-in that says, join our email list with 35,000 people on it. I said, okay, Tom, column one. Okay, email list size, 35,000. Okay, Tom's email here. Okay, email Tom, invite him on the show, right? To do the recording. And then what I did is before launch day, I emailed all of you. And I don't know if you were in that initial batch. I'm giving you an example. And I said, hey, Tom, I'm only gonna release 10 episodes on day one. And the way I'm going to choose is, are you open to emailing your list? Otherwise, I'll release you on a little bit later date. So I had about 2 million emails going out for the show on day one using that one sort of social psychology hack. And that's what made it take off. And then after that is when we sort of systematized. I think this is one of the keys to your success or brilliance or whatever is like spotting those opportunities and being like bargaining them to get them. Like me doing the Instagram in exchange coming on the show. I mean, because... If I had those 40 people, I don't know if I would email them and be like, you get first if you email your list. I think it's great that you would do it. I think you have to have sort of a lot of empathy and try and understand what other people might care about. Some people didn't care about going out when the show was, you know, on day one. They didn't care. Other people really cared. And so I think you just have to pay attention to what people care about and then try and help them get what they want. That also helps you get what you want. So that's what we did. All right, podcast system, and let's try and get the juicy ones. I know obviously we're going to block record episodes like two days a month or whatever. What else have you done there that just means you spend zero time on it and it just happens? 
here are the three things that I thought was important, were important when I launched the show that I ended up changing about 100 episodes in because I realized they were not important. Number one, I was renting studio space at a local studio spot for about 100 bucks an hour. I thought I needed a real studio, real sound wall, real on-air flashing red button. I wanted to feel like a host, right? And so that was number one. I then realized very quickly the number one reason podcasts fail is because the host establishes a consistency, whether that's once a week, once a month, every Tuesday, Thursday, once a day. It doesn't matter what consistency you see you establish. But once you break that consistency with your audience, you lose trust with them, right? And they go find someone else to fill that time of their day and then you've lost them. So I realized quickly if I wanted to stay consistent, I needed to not require myself to drive 30 minutes into a studio, pay 100 bucks an hour to record in studio and do all that. So I eliminated that. I thought it was important, it wasn't important. Second thing, I thought it was really important to do hours of research ahead of the interview. What I realized though is when I did that, when I asked questions live on the interview, I took things for granted that my audience didn't know yet because I had already done the research. And then those episodes were less watched. So now I don't do any research ahead of time. I come in green, just like my audience. That helps me ask the questions they're thinking in their head better. So that's number two. That's number two. Then number three is I thought I had to have a big editing team, spend a hundred bucks per episode to get the, it, all the uhs and ums out and unblur stuff. And if the Wi-Fi dropped to take that chunk out and edit it, got rid of all of that. Today, I spent about $5 per episode. I record on Zoom. It goes into Google Drive, just the raw audio. I pay freelancer three bucks per episode. He takes it, puts it together and publishes both on Libsyn and YouTube and schedules it on Libsyn, right, for iTunes and on YouTube to release. And that's it. So our full site, you know, I pay $2 per YouTube thumbnail, right? So the whole cycle there now is much faster, very rapid. And so I thought I'd spend a bunch on editing. I now spend $5 per episode. Those are the three big changes. No studio, no prep work, no editing. The first monetization was through sponsors, right? Correct. And was that at about the same time that you started building out other media assets, e.g. the GetLack database? No, the sponsors came way before the database. Our first sponsor, do you want me to go into our first sponsor? Yeah. I have the contract open right now. I signed it on November 7, 2017. It was with HostGator. At that time, the podcast logo was an orange background called the Top Entrepreneurs in Money, Marketing, and Life, right? SEO stuff, the headline, right? They paid $15,000 per month for 12 months. And I'm reading the deliverables. So the deliverables were a mid-roll, so a 30-second mid-roll between minute 10 and 15 of the podcast. And then a post-roll, post-roll. I don't even know if that's a thing, a post-roll. I made it up. 30-second post-roll at the end of each show. And they got that once per week. So it wasn't every episode. So they got, they were paying 15 grand for five place, marketing on five episodes per month. And that total price was 180,000 bucks. Chris Whitling was the director of marketing. He's the signatory here on the agreement. We signed it. They paid and I said, okay, we can make this work. That probably sounds too good to be true to most your audience. Nathan, 180,000. But before that, I had a bunch of failed folks that asked a sponsor that didn't work because they all, Tom, tried to pin me down to a CPM number. And I kept trying to tell them, listen, I'm not Joe Rogan. I'm not going to have a million listens per show. But you know who is listening? Like every founder of a B2B SaaS company doing more than a million of revenue and all the PE in the space. So if you like that audience, even if I only have a thousand downloads per episode, you should pay me whatever I ask to get placement because it's really targeted. And so I switched from a CPM model to a cost per lead model. And that's where it clicked. Based on the cost of running the show, it seems like it was like maybe 250 a month, obviously not including your time. What were you investing the other 14,750 in at that time? You mean the profits I was making versus the sponsorship minus my costs? Yeah. Sitting on cash. I mean, I literally just let it sort of build up. 
I mean, I would go, oh my gosh, this is very, very profitable. I was making way more doing the media stuff than I was making at my software company, Heyo, right? And I said, look, I'm never going to sell the media business, right? Because it's my last name now. It's Gitlatka. But it was a great cash cow. And I was just sort of saving up until I figured out what was the thing I wanted to build for software founders. I would have a bunch of cash to get going with it. And that happened. Founder Path started emerging in 2019. 2000. And in 2018, founders on the show, after we stopped recording, but before I let them go on Zoom, they would say, Ethan, I really enjoyed that. Hey, quick question. Could they start asking, could you help me raise debt? Yeah. What do you, I said, what do you mean debt? You mean like a home mortgage? I didn't even know what it meant. So I Googled software debt and I found Lighter Capital and SaaS Capital and Espresso and Tamaya. And I quickly emailed BJ at Lighter Capital and I signed referral agreements, right? Lighter Capital at one point was paying me five, 10 grand a month, right? To send them deal flow. And so what I did is I sent them deal flow. I then saw the contracts the founder signed with them. And I said, oh, wow, there are ways to improve this. And with that cash I'd saved from the media business sponsors and other things, I started doing my own debt deals into B2B SaaS founders. And Tom, eventually what happened is when I gave a founder 30K, these are small deals back then, 30, 50K, they'd have to send me their monthly reporting, bank statement, P&L, balance sheet. My inbox was a mess. I mean, files all over the place. My desktop had icons across the whole thing. You know what it's like, right? And so FounderPath was launched officially, the website in December of 2019. And its purpose was to allow all those founders to connect via API to FounderPath. So they didn't have to send me statement descriptors every month. And that's how I would manage my debt exposures. And you did that with a co-founder, it wasn't just you, right? I did. And my first software company, my biggest frustration was I had two co-founders that quit one year in. They took 40% equity with them, right? I hated having 40% of debt equity on the cap table. And Tom, I didn't know about vesting. There was no cliff. So even though they left quickly, like they still got the full thing, right? I learned the lesson the hard way. So I kept building that business for four years. Imagine going to work every day. And every time you add revenue, you think, I just made these guys rich and they're not even active anymore. Just imagine that every day you think that. It's terrible. So long story short is I learned very quickly, I need to be a solo founder. Right. And you look at some of the most successful founders in the world today. Who's Bezos' co founder? Who's Elon Musk's co founder? Who's Jack Dorsey's co founder at Twitter? It's a single person with a big vision that can move fast, can take the hits when they make the wrong decision, but they're not terminal hits. They're little hits. And they only need one of the big things. So I said, you know, going into Founder Path, I'm just going to pay my first engineer a lot of money and I'm going to keep 100% equity. And that's what I did. So no co founders. Oh, interesting. I thought it was a co-founder. And so Founder Path is still, I know you've raised, we'll get to that later anyway. The media company is separate to Founder Path, right? Correct. Very, very different. And you're 100% owner of that? Correct. Of the media business, yes. Nice. And that is monetized, I assume, through sponsorships. And also you have an event. So let me split up the empire for you and bucket this all for you, right? GitLatka could never be part of Founder Path because Founder Path requires founders connect real data. If I didn't have those as separate companies, founders, there would be a perception that the data founders were giving us via API and FounderPath was then being sold on GitLatka. That's not what we do, but the perception, that would happen. And so I made the decision very early. They'd be very separate companies. In fact, today, GitLatka is run by a CEO I recruited. His name is Ilya Simon, who used to run Data Nice. So he, I spend very little time on GitLatka outside of just recording the podcast and should be all my times on FounderPath. The conference you just mentioned, sasopen.com, right, which will do over a million of dollars of revenue this year, that is actually wholly owned and operated by FounderPath. Oh, interesting. It's a profitable distribution channel for FounderPath. We can talk more about that later. So GitLatka is monetized through podcast sponsorships, 
magazine sales and get Latka.com data subscriptions. People pay 50 to 100 bucks a month to get the interviews, the podcast interviews in a data format. I think you innovated on that podcast monetization strategy of like pulling data, asking thin questions so you get standard data set, pulling them out and then selling it. It's absolutely incredible. And I also forgot about the magazine. It was kind of like a little bit groundbreaking or strange when you released the paper magazine, right? Do you have one there? I do. Let me grab it. Hold on. Here we go. There we go. Yeah. Is that the most recent one? This isn't the most recent one. Yeah, nice. So all this is, this will shock you. This is just data points from pulled from each episode in a bullet list format. All it is is customer count, revenue, team size, and then like we have revenue growth curves of founders who've come on the show, team size, growth curves, equity splits. And then we do in each one, we do maybe like a big feature story, right? And this one was on Jellify where the founder came on the show. We do the numerical profile over here some things off their glass door profile there. And people pay 300 bucks per year for this. We send one per quarter. And so there's a, you know, we've shipped hundreds of thousands of copies of the magazine. The magazine's in over $2 million of sales just by itself, life to date, which I think shocks people when they hear a magazine in 2024. So you have that media company that's growing off the side and you're getting a more famous through it and also just investing a couple of days a month to be the source of the data, but also produce the podcast, host the podcast. Yep, record the 20 minute episode. And I heard you on another podcast say that this is what you would turn as a kingmaker, something that you would never sell. It's something that you'll keep. And let's say you found a path, something happens or you sell it, then you would take the leverage the media business to do the next thing. You nailed it. And I leverage get lack of two. When I give a founder, now we're doing $2 million term loans at FounderPath. So if someone has $5 million of revenue, a software company, we'll give them $2 million. They pay back over 48 months with a 24-month bio period, no warrants or personal guarantees. If that software I just put money into debt-wise, sells to software or founders, I will use the media business to drive customers into that company we just put money into. And is that part of the loan agreement? Or that's just something you do? It's not, but it's nice to have. You know, you we get pitched by investors all the time and they say, oh, we're going to be value add. And you go, well, how about I can add value? What are you going to sit on my board and be annoying? What are you actually going to do? And we can actually say, look, we'll send an email to the GitLaka list for your software. Here's the open rate. Here's the click-through rate. Here's the traffic bump you're going to get. Here, we'll put you on the cover of the magazine, right? I mean, there's so many... To your point earlier, my whole world is about a media business where I create a bunch of stuff that can be traded, space on the podcast, space on GitLatka, interview in the magazine, and then you trade these things for other things to get leverage and growth. This is the hidden benefit, I think, between owning or starting a media brand. It could be as simple as just like building a LinkedIn profile, building an email list, posting on X, because then you basically can add value to anybody in your space and leverage that to push yourself forward, which I think you've done pretty well. All right. Let's move on to founder path. So it's 2018, people are asking you, you were like, I've got cash, I'll give the cash out. But now it's a bigger thing, right? You have a team, I think you've raised money for it, but not like you raised equity. Right? So, so what was the reason for that? So the way you have to build, I think it was a simple way to describe this. So when I was doing deals myself before founder path, $30,000 debt into a company in 2018, 2019, you know, I was funding the full 30,000 myself. It was my own money, they'd pay back over time. Once FounderPath started growing, what I realized is there were other people that wanted exposure to those same software companies. In other words, if I was going to do a $100,000 loan, they'd be willing to give me 90000 bucks, and then I would only put in 10000 And so and then I would do the deal. And the tricky thing is, though, is when you go out, and so we raised $150 million in a debt fund, right? So we control it. It's on balance sheet. And we're not a marketplace. It's our own money. We're doing these deals, $150 million. But that $150 million would only fund $0.90 cents on every dollar. So FounderPath or me, we started to come up with the extra 10 cents. It's called haircut capital. And so 10% of 150 million or 10 cents, right? 150 million, you got to go raise or have access to 15, 20, 30 million bucks of capital 
to fuel the haircut. And so what we did there, as I used a combination of my own capital, Tom, plus an equity raise we did in October of 2020. Was that a... Gosh, that wasn't last year. That was 2022, I think, at this point, I believe. And so, yeah, we raised that capital. Now, the nice thing is that's all still in the bank. You know, we're a team of 13 people. That's all still in the bank. And we use that to do debt deals. Aside from the equity raise, are you the 100% owner, founder puff? And the team. Yeah. Got it. Okay. Option pool. Yep. I have to drill you on the numbers. How much did it cost you to give money to a SaaS company? Yeah. So the best way to look at this data and the way we got to our pricing, which I'll share the hard numbers here in a second, is the largest debt holders, like the largest debt providers in the world to SaaS companies. Can you guess who they are, Tom? The big banks, pension funds, PE companies. Close, close. They're what's called publicly traded BDCs in the US. Publicly traded BDCs, business development corps. Biggest one is Aries. Aries has about $28 billion of capital under management in their BDC. Of that $28 billion, $5 billion of it is directly loans into software companies, right? And so what's interesting, and the next one after them is FSKKR. And what's great is because they're public, we can go look at their 10 Qs they file each quarter. And in their 10 Q, they have to disclose every loan they've done. So for example, Blackstone gave Bizarre Voice a $229 million loan at an 11% interest rate, right? Aries Triple Point gave Cart.com 24 million loan at a 15.75% interest rate. Cart does 50 million of revenue. So um, a long answer to your question is, we benchmark our costs of capital, like we're gonna charge founders to what these BDCs are charging in public markets, right? So that's step one. So again, if cart.com is getting 15.75% right, interest on a 24-month deal and they're doing 60 million of revenue and we're doing a deal into a riskier SaaS company at 10 million of revenue, you can assume our interest rate is going to be higher than 15.75%. Now to your first question, which is what is the cost to founder path? What do we pay our banks? I will just tell you, we have very competitive cost of capital. We Under 10%, right? I'll give you a hard number. Our cost of capital is under 10%. And the reason, and it didn't start there though, it started higher than that. And the way we got it under that is because we've kept our default rates very, very low, but it's very, I mean, I don't like throwing people under the bus, right? But Pipe raised a crap ton of money, gave it out willy-nilly. Their underwriting was terrible. We were constantly pen testing Pipe, and, you know, in a nice way. You could upload fake data to Pipe and they'd give you an offer. It was really bad. So like we knew Pipe was going to blow up. You can tell because they were just trying to drive AUM growth at all costs. Well, now they're not lending money anymore and the founders aren't there. There's a reason for that. So what we're trying to build is the largest asset manager of B2B software companies. And so we want to be managing a billion in a couple of years and 50 billion by 2030. And so we have to keep our loss rates really, really low in order to do that, you know, under 2 3% on the total money we've deployed life to date. Question was actually around the acquisition cost for you to put money into a SaaS company for FounderPath. You should have cut me off. I apologize. No, no, it's great, great analysis. Great financial analysis. The number, there's two things that kill fintech companies. They can't get customers cheap enough and their losses are too high, right? They don't have enough net interest margin, right? So their margin of safety is too small. I preach this to the team. So the first one is relevant for your question. How do we get customers cheaper than anybody else? I'll just put it this way. We have negative CAC, right? So a customer for FounderPath will pay three grand to attend SaaS Open and, that, and that's our revenue. And then at SaaS Open, we will do a $2 million term loan with them. So we have negative CAC. But is SaaS Open the only acquisition channel? No, we do webinars. We do monthly webinars and they're sponsors of the webinars, right? So we make money on the webinar and then we sign up customers there. If you go to founderpath.com forward slash resources, we record every keynote at SaaS Open and, and put it in a resource hub over there for SEO play, right? So we're cutting up content just like I did in my early days at Galatka. 
there's a variety of ways to do this. I guess my point being is I am just constantly beating my team, especially after we raise the capital and everyone wants to just solve every problem with money. You have to, as a founder, constantly remind your marketing and sales and top of funnel team, guys, how do we get creative and create owned and operated distribution channels? Owned and operated distribution channels. That's the moat. And that's how you can make them profitable. And that's what SaaS Open is. It's kind of trendy to bootstrap now versus three to four years ago. So you timed that well. Like you were calling out the VCs back in 2018. So you timed that well. Do you think it's going to switch back in like five years? People start thinking it's cool to raise big equity rounds again. I think the reason people raise big equity rounds is not because it's cool. It's because they have friends and family that don't believe the business they're building is legitimate. And they feel like the way to convince friends and family they're doing something interesting is to say, look, a big VC invested. Generally, I think for first time founders, that's actually the reason they usually raise equity. That's it. It's for making themselves feel better that they're doing the right thing. That's why they do it. Now, look, there's others that are second, third time founders that have already identified, I want to raise a hundred million bucks to go buy three companies. It's a whole different playbook. But my point being is based off the podcast and the data set we've built, like I know for every founder that is raised that you read about in TechCrunch, there's a thousand that are happily bootstrapping that you never hear from. So that is the majority. That is the bigger market. That is what FounderBath wants to build for. It's 10 times as big of a market as the folks that raise capital. So it's less about like, Tom, what I think is trendy. It's more about, I want to go serve a big market and it's bootstrappers. Let's talk about SaaS Open now. What are you doing? And I've seen a few things differently that's going to make you better than SaaS Doc and all the other ones that maybe we shouldn't name. So first off, let me just start by saying, Jason Lemkin is the original content creator in this space. I mean, that guy... There's no shortcuts. He works his tail off to put out amazing content. Started off on Quora. Now he does it obviously on Saster, right? Incredible machine. I've gone to Saster. There's nothing wrong with Saster, right? But I go to Saster. Most of my conversations ends up being with like salespeople that I run into that are running around trying to get a free alcohol. They want to go to the party at night and they're eating the soggy sandwich at lunch, which is fine. Like Jason has to do this at scale. So the sandwiches are going to be soggy, right? You can't make like 10,000 nice sandwiches for lunch. It just doesn't work. You can't give every person attending their own outlet. You can't make a nice mocha with like a custom topping with cinnamon for every attendee. You can't do these things, right? I also, with Jason, because he has his own fund, I believe, and I don't have any inside information here, but he smartly puts other investors on the stage because he knows he's going to get deal flow, right? And they'll share deal flow. Those VCs will mark up his investments and vice versa. So it's just sort of a different positioning. Now, that being said, he also gets great founders to speak. The, the currency of Algolia spoke. I went last year. She was fantastic. He gets great, great speakers, but it's big, right? So like Jason, like Saster. The other side is SaaS stock. Also very close with Alex, right? Super close with Alex. Alex is going to come speak at SaaS Open and I'm going to invite Jason had me to Saster last year to host a stage, et cetera. So what Alex does, I think, really, really well is he is the party. People come to hang out with Alex. They want to go to the Irish bar after SaaS stock and hang out with Alex and the sort of the cohort he's built around him. They've got a great team over there. But SaaS stock, in my opinion, when you look at some of the slide decks that end up on stage, there isn't hard data. And you're constantly wondering, am I learning here from a consultant? Or is this a real founder operator? And if you start wondering who you're learning from, then you're going to lose interest a little bit. And so what I always do with anything I create, the podcast, etc., is I go, what already exists? What do I love about what exists? And then what I want to change about what exists? So I just told you what I love about what exists. What I wanted to change is I wanted every speaker within the first five slides at SaaS Open to show their revenue graph. So you know you are learning from an operator. No bullshit. That's number one. And I've removed speakers with over 100 million bucks of revenue from the stage because they refused to put the revenue graph in the first five slides. I ruthlessly cut like this. This year at SaaS Open, we'll have over 120 speakers, four stages. They're all showing real revenue proof in their decks. 
And that one thing alone, when people hear this on the podcast, I guarantee they're thinking, oh my gosh, that would be amazing. I agree with Nathan. I do like those things about Saster. I do like those about Saster. I do not like those things about, the, that's why I wanna to come to SaaS Open. So more data, everyone's an operator, and our tickets are expensive on purpose, right? They're three grand. If you wait to the last minute to buy, people pay last year four grand at the last minute to come. That's on purpose. That's because we don't sell to a lot of sponsors who care about how many bodies are walking around. They love the fact that it's only last year 500, but they're all software founders with cumulative 4 billion of revenue. So that's how we're thinking about SaaS Open. Is that helpful? Yeah, links are going to be below. If you haven't got your ticket yet, what's the day? March 20... It's March 28th. We do it twice a year. March 28th, 2024 in Austin, Texas. And then September 5th in New York City this year as well. Links are going to be below. Final question, more for personal interest. Day to day, what are you doing? Today, for example, what's on the agenda? My number one priority every day is always delinquent accounts at FounderPath, right? So which founders are in trouble, right? And how can I help them? Really? Right. And so thankfully, there's not a lot of them, but that's always my first priority, right? Are those. It's also important for FounderPath. We can't have millions and millions of losses. We go out of business otherwise. That's what makes this business hard. So you're literally like calling them up and like working with them on how they can improve stuff. Well, an example might be, uh, hey, someone, so I see your bank balance just dropped from 100K to 30K. Your next payment to FounderPath is 10K. That's 30% of your total cash on hand. What's your plan to grow revenue? And try and sort of like get ahead of that kind of stuff. So I do a lot of that. That's number one. Number two is working with our product team on like admin dashboards for tracking. So we sit on $9 billion of transaction volume from connected APIs into FounderPath, right? From B2B SaaS companies. We see every transaction. So we work on how do we use that data to understand risk and credit. The next thing I do is I am with credit committee looking at current capital requests in FounderPath and either approving or rejecting deals and communicating the approvals or rejections to founders. We're doing, you know, three to four deals per week. We'll put out about 150 million this year alone. We'll reach 500 million total deployed sometime in the middle of next year. We currently have 212 active founders with capital out at FounderPath, all B2B SaaS. So that's number three. Number four is Jim, right? Like if my body dies, then I don't have FounderPath. So it's something like sweat, do something that sweats. And then six and seven sort of after that is, can I get a three hour chunk of the day free to just let myself go into a flow state and do long, creative, long-term thinking? That's sort of what my day-to-day looks like. Well, Nathan, I've been following since I did your Instagram back in 2016 up until today. And I'm looking forward to seeing what happens over the next seven years as well. So thank you so much for coming on and thank you for being so honest and open. I was so honest and open because I was so impressed with the work you did for me. I don't know if you remember, you did long form posts for us as well. And I have never to this day found a writer. And it's actually evident in how you ask questions and prepare for this interview as well. There's very little people that can go as deep, ask the right questions and care as much and use you and you just put in the work and do what you do. So when you asked, I said, absolutely, yes, I'm on. And I really appreciate you having me, Tom. I appreciate it, Nathan. Thank you. All right, team, always love chatting with Nathan. Links to SaaS Open will be below. As we heard, SaaS founders, if you're one of them, I highly recommend going. We'll also have links to everything else that Nathan mentioned, including that article that he mentioned. We did a big long-form case study on ClickFunnels, I think, that we published on Gemlanka. So we'll link to that below. Obviously, thank you to Nathan for coming on. Thank you to Fame for producing this. We actually, for the first time ever, started to offer a couple of new things. If you think about the podcast, it's like the bottom of the funnel. Super important, really good for deepening relationships, maybe not that good for building a new audience. So you really need two or one thing above that in order to help 
flow the attention or bring the attention down to the show. So we start at the top with social, organic social from an influencer or thought leader in the business. We blow up their profile. We then, and step two is kind of optional, is we capture the email address with an email newsletter. And then we, from there, take that attention down to the podcast. So we start offering those two other things, we're calling it a social and we're calling it email. If you're interested in either of those, go to fame.so, request a proposal, or just drop me a DM on LinkedIn and we'll jump on a call to discuss. I'll link to more detail about those services below, of course. So all that's left is to thank you for listening.